Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Let's pray. Father, I ask You to help us is the church to hear, to think, to think clearly about this topic this morning for the ultimate goal that we will revel in the truth of your particular love for us to the glory of Jesus. Amen. So this is the fifth week on the topic of divine election or predestination that Ephesians 1 and our journey through Ephesians is brought to our attention. And in dealing with this subject, like the last four sermons, it inevitably, to any thinking person, which is the vast majority of humanity, brings up the issue and the tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man or human beings. Let me, let me, let me preface everything with this. No Christian should ever embrace a clear contradiction. Let me give you a contradiction. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. And human beings are absolutely autonomous. That's a contradiction. Absolutely autonomous, being free from any authority or power that is over them or that they are in any way under. So, the opposite of God's sovereignty over all things is not the freedom of human choice. That's what I'm going to try to show. They are not in a contradiction with one another. The opposite of God's sovereignty over all things is human autonomy. And that's different. This radical idea of total dependence floating over here while God's over there and we are dictators of our destinies because we are autonomous. If God is sovereign, then human beings cannot be autonomous. If human beings are sovereign, I mean, are, have, a, have autonomy, absolute, to themselves, radical independence, then God cannot 
be sovereign. So that's not the issue. What I want to talk about this morning is something different than autonomy. It is this. What is the human will? How is it that God is sovereign and we do have freedom to choose what we want? So let me start this way. What often happens when people hear Christians, and these are Christian people or non-Christian people that hear other Christians like me teach on unconditional election, on God's sovereignty, on predestination, is there's this knee-jerk reaction that is irrational and it's unbiblical concerning the human will. It goes something like this. No, no, no. We're free, which must mean somehow when we make choices, everything is neutral. In other words, it's not a free choice unless I either have a total blank slate before me and then just choose, or if there are things before me that I'm choosing, they have to be totally equal to my desire in order for it to be free. And that is an absurd idea. And every single one of us, if you just lay down in bed and think about your own life, this is what's good about this morning's uh, sermon on the will. You all have it. You live with it. It's very practical. So I want you to think that way about it. None of us, know, we, we all know that that's not how the will in us operates. And it is irrational. It is irrational to think that the will for it in order to be free must have complete neutrality over the choices it's going to make. In other words, the idea, no, no, i got to be free if I have no prior biases, inclinations, Wants or those things I don't want. Just think about it. If we did, if that were true, if, it, if we human beings made choices daily in our lives without anything that, was, that came temporally before the choice, if there, there was nothing prior to the choices that we make, so that would mean we are making choices for no reason. Because there's no reason or nothing prior to the choice that informs the choice that we would be making. And if that were true, if we were making choices for no reason, that would mean our choices had no moral significance to them. If you choose to help the old lady cross the street safely, why? Oh, there's no why. There were no reasons. There was nothing prior that moved my will to choose to do that. There's just nothing. Well, then that act that you chose has no positive moral ramifications to it. If you just chose to accept Jesus as your Savior, why? No reason. Not, there is nothing before the will. The will is this thing that just in thin air acts and makes choices. Within well, the choice to choose Jesus has no moral implications to it. And that's not who human beings are. If, 
God judges our choices as evil, bad, or as good and praiseworthy. And He does it precisely because those choices are coming from something prior to them. Motivations. Thoughts. Bad reasoning. Good reasoning. Inclinations that move our will and thus we choose. And that's why we are morally accountable. Do you remember the end of the book of Genesis? Jacob's brothers had motivation that moved their will to get rid. Did I say Jacob? Joseph. To get rid of Joseph. They wanted him dead, and then, of course, was it, I think it was Judah or Simeon, or one of them stood up. Let's not kill him. But, so they got rid of him and sold him off into slavery and told Jacob, the father, he's dead. Why did they choose that? Because there was something prior in them of jealousy, hatred. They couldn't stand his attitude, etc. And it moved their will, and they made that. And that's why their acts were sinful. Motivation. And at the end of Genesis, later down the road, decades later, Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, concerning the exact same historical account. As for you, you meant... There's motivation. You meant evil against me. That's why you did it. But, concerning me being sold into slavery by you, God was sovereign. And God meant, there's motivation, He meant it for good. You see, without motives, without prior reasons, inclinations that cause our will to choose this, that, or the other, we would be like animals. Non-moral creatures. When a lion kills a human being, unless you're, you don't think clearly, that lion is not committing murder. The human being is as dead as dead, as dead could be. But murder is a moral category that is reserved for human beings made in the image of God because they have reason, an intellect, can contemplate inclinations and desires and motives that are vying for their choice. And based upon those, they choose. And that's why when a human being purposefully and deliberately kills another human being who is innocent, or it's not capital punishment, that is called murder. If the will is totally neutral, as some would like to postulate, you've got to ask yourself a question. Just think about yourself. There's nothing before the will that's going to cause it to act. It's just neutral. Then why would you ever choose anything? You're driving down the street. You come to a dead end. What are you going to do? You're going to turn left? 
or are you going to turn right? It depends. It depends on something that is prior to the choice of turning. It depends on where you're going. That'll dictate. If you're going nowhere, you might do what I do. My wife knows this at times. We can't decide where we're going. We're in the car, and I pull the car over. She says, what are you doing? I have no idea what restaurant we're going to. I don't know which way to go. I just don't. I need something prior in order to make the choice. That's how the will works. See, the idea that the human will operates from a neutral, blank slate and then just out of nowhere chooses is irrational. And secondly, it would mean human beings are not morally accountable. They're like animals. If there are no prior motivations, inclinations, reasons that the will is choosing from. And many of you know this. I've said it so many times because it's true. When I'm teaching on these kinds of subjects over the years, people will ask me, well, don't you believe in free will? And I always respond with a question because I love clarity first. I think this is what you mean by free will. Tell me if this is what you mean. I think what you're asking me is, do I believe that we human beings are free to choose anything we want at any given moment? So far, everyone answers, yes. Then I say, Absolutely, I believe in free will if that's your definition. Not only that, that is exactly what the human will is and how it works. Now, Jonathan Edwards, back in the 1740s, wrote the, in my opinion, most thorough treatise on the subject of the human will. Boiled down... Here's his one-sentence definition of the will. The will is the mind choosing. In other words, before a human being can make a choice, for the will acts, there is always something that is prior to the will acting or making the choice. Not only that, those things and that thing that is prior to the will choosing is actually causing the will to choose that thing. The will responds to the mind. It is the mind choosing. It responds to the options, the thoughts the inclinations, the motivations which are in the mind. Our wills make choices based upon what the mind approves of most, or disapproves of, or rejects. And so we find ourselves in our daily lives, we are constantly bombarded with competing desires, competing inclinations, And at every given moment, 
whichever desire or inclination that is in competition with others in our mind that is the strongest is the one we choose. All the time. We cannot choose any other than the strongest inclination in the mind at any given moment. We make choices that are morally bad or morally good precisely because we have a will that is choosing from options. And it's not instinct like an animal. We have a will that acts upon the intellect, upon our desire factory down here, which approves or disapproves of this or that or the other thing. Okay, you, you hanging? Right. Now, everything that I have just said, I think we all know to be true by our experience of being a human being with an intellect and a will. And that is, our will is free. What do I mean? Our will as human beings is free in that we have the ability to choose whatever we most want at any given moment. In fact, we must choose what we most want at any given moment. That is the essence of the freedom of the human will. And this means that every choice we human beings make is free. And it is determined. It's determined by something that is prior to the choice. The strongest motive or inclination. The will is not determined by an external force that coerces it to choose something against its will. That's a contradiction. It's not what's happening. But the will is determined by our own internal inclinations, our own internal likes or dislikes or drives or thoughts. So let's just kind of work this out practically for a second. You're driving down the street and you see in the backyard there's a 12-year-old boy raking leaves. He is choosing to rake leaves. That's how it works. Why? There's something prior to the, to, to the choice of raking the leaves that is the cause of him raking leaves. So maybe it's because he finds such great joy in making huge piles of leaves. Possible. And that's probably happened with some boys. Probably not the case here. Or, okay, maybe what was prior to the choice of raking leaves was his desire to see a beautifully clean yard and all the green grass shows and no leaves on top, and therefore, I'm going to rake the leaves to get to that end. Possible? Probably not. Maybe it's because Dad commanded him to rake the leaves. 
Okay, so what? Well, so what? Welcome to humanity. This is how it works. Our choices get limited. And so the boy's raking the leaves because he deemed the most desirable thing is to rake the leaves because to not do it, the consequences of not raking the leaves would be much less desirable. And thus he chose from the options that were before him. Now the boy may say, look, all things being equal, I hate raking leaves. I have no desire to rake leaves. All things being equal. But that's the problem. All things are not equal. They never are. So the kid prefers the option that is less painful which is the option that is more desirable. Oh, let's just take the one as you grow older, you know it more and more for sure. I need to lose weight. I've got to watch my diet. I've got to control it and let it not control me. That's what I desire to do. I am. It's a New Year's resolution and here I go. And so you have a desire to lose weight and to control appetite and what you're going to take in. <laughs> And then after church one day, someone comes up to me and says, I would like to take you out to the hummus factory. Okay, what happened? All of a sudden, with a desire, look, I've been buying food at the store that's appropriate. Okay, I can keep and monitor my appetite and my calorie intake. But all of a sudden now, another competing desire has been thrown into my mind. Mmm, eat a chicken plate with that hot sauce and more garlic sauce and hummus and make my Oh, with good fellowship. <laughs> Alright. So which which one will Joe choose at three PM on Sunday afternoon? I know exactly what he would choose. And you should too if you've been listening. He will choose whichever one of those desires to control and not eat the hummus factory or to go and to eat at the hummus factory. Whichever desire outweighed or is a little bit stronger than the other, that is the one when the decision point came, he will choose every time. Even though the next week it might be the different choice because the other one was a stronger desire. Or you get pulled over by the cop, you're speeding, he writes you a moving violations, and you see the fine, it's $340. None of us desire to pay that $340 in and of itself. But that's not just in and of itself. We could neglect to pay the fine. But most of us, there's always, you know, trust me, these people live out there. But most of us would choose to pay the fine of $340. Why? Because of something prior. Because our mind is telling us the consequences of not paying 
$340 fine are much worse than the pain of forking over the $340. And so we do. We choose the least painful option, which is the strongest motivation. I can go on and on and on and on and get in it. So for me to say that we always choose according to the strongest inclination at any given moment is the same thing as saying we always choose what we want. Which is to say, we are free. And we are self-determined. We're not puppets. You all heard that, right? Were you saying we're a puppet? No, a puppet is an inanimate object where there's another being over there moving the arms instead of something internal to the puppet deciding by choice to move the arm and rake the leaves. We are not puppets. Jesus spoke this way. He was clear that we choose from something prior. The, the fruit on the trees, for Jesus' analogies, those are choices that come from the root, which is prior. You'll know a tree by its fruit, by its choices. A bad tree, a sinful tree, produces sinful bad fruit or sinful bad choices and actions. You will know a tree by its choices because the root is prior producing the fruit or the choices. A corrupt tree produces corrupt fruit. A fig tree produces figs, not apples. Okay. Now, take the next step then. I want to talk about the difference between natural ability and moral ability. This goes to the core of the debate within the church world on the issue of divine election and predestination and how the human will operates and why are we accountable. And Jonathan Edwards is extremely helpful in distinguishing between natural ability and moral ability. See, we are held morally accountable for our sin to be punished and for our good deeds to be praised morally. Why? Because we have natural ability to do or not to do this, that, or the other. If you don't have moral ability, different than natural ability, if you don't have moral ability to refrain from evil, to refrain from burglarizing that house on that night, everything came together and you could not help yourself. It was the strongest motivation. All things said and done, and thus you burglarize the house because you had no moral ability to not do it. That does not make you unaccountable for your decision to be prosecuted by the state of California and thrown in prison. See, 
So for natural ability, it has to do with the powers, the capabilities that we are given as particular kinds of creatures that are natural to us. So for instance, birds. They have the natural ability to fly in and of themselves. Human beings don't have that. We don't have that natural ability. So if God were to say, here's the 11th commandment. Obey me, I'm God. Flap your arms and fly. That would be unjust. We are not accountable. He can't hold us morally accountable to obey that command because we do not have the natural ability to do so. So we as human beings, what are our natural abilities? Well, we're made in the image of God. Therefore, we have the natural ability to reason. The natural ability to think, to walk, to talk, to see, to hear, to choose. We have a mind and we have a will, not instinct, a will to choose what we want. That's the natural ability we have. We are morally accountable for our choices. Precisely because they are our choices coming from our desires. I mean, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? See, I don't like sushi either. So I don't eat it. I don't eat it because it is. It's almost not even there before the mind. I've never been put in a situation where I'm starving to death yet. So I don't like sushi. Okay. Alright, let's go to it. But there's nothing moral or immoral about that. So, let's say it this way. The way I, Joe LeMay, is born into this world is that I do not obey the command to love God and to trust the Creator. You know why I don't? You know why by nature I have not done that? It is because I don't have it within me to do so. I was born morally unable to do so. All I mean by that is because I don't want to. You see, but because I'm morally unable to obey the moral command to worship the Lord your God and serve Him only, that does not get me off the hook of accountability for refusing to do it. Any more than a kid going to his mom and dad says, you know what? You cannot ground me and punish me for not obeying you and doing my chores. Huh? Why not? The kid says, because I had no desire to obey you and to do my chores. Okay. No, you're going to be grounded. Okay. No one has a problem with that. But it is amazing how within Christianity, instead of the kid with the parents, us with God, and they don't buy that little argument. Nope. If I'm an unable, God cannot punish me just. It doesn't seem right. It's the same situation. 
See, our problem then, as human beings, is Adam. <laughs> In Adam, our representative, he plunged humanity into sin. And in Adam, we all sinned. We are all born with a sin, darkened, God-belittling, hating nature. And that is at the core of us in our desire factory. The nature, you got to get this now, follow. The nature of our desires, those things that are causing choices, the nature of our desire in the fall have been infused with God neglect. Have been infused with idolatry. I worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. I do not desire to humble myself and have God be my treasure. And we're all born into the world. You see, in the fall of mankind, we did not lose the natural ability to choose what we want. It's intact. What we lost was the moral ability to choose the good. To choose God. And right here, this is the crux of the debate in the church concerning election and predestination. Is election unconditional or is it conditional? In other words, do we, by our very nature of just coming into existence as human beings, do we have within our nature, natural desires, the desire to embrace Christ and to love Him? That's the question. And the answer to that question will dictate, as a Christian, how you understand your salvation when it comes to election. You see, we've already seen, in order for any of us to choose Christ, yes, I'm saved by Him, we have to have the prior desire to choose Christ. So, were we born with that desire naturally? If so, then we're fallen, but we're not totally fallen. Still have a flicker of desire for Or were we born without that desire whatsoever? And therefore, in order to be saved, God must intervene and by grace give us that desire so that we will then choose Christ. Well, you know my position. That's what the New Testament seems to clearly teach. If God does not change the human heart, that factory of desires and inclinations and likes and dislikes, if He does not change the human heart with new desires that weren't there before, and He does it by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who is the personification of loving God, if the love of God in the Spirit doesn't come into the human heart to give those new desires to love God through Jesus Christ, then no one will ever be 
saved. See, that's how Paul talks in 1 Corinthians when he writes, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. That's the response. Because of sin nature. And they will go on and on and on freely rejecting Christ according to their own internal desires in worldly wisdom and perish. If God doesn't sovereignly intervene. Since the fall of mankind in the garden, our wills are intact. Nothing's changed about the nature of the will the way I described it. But we are fallen creatures. And the condition of our hearts is sin nature. It is void of God-wordness. Our idea, because of our sin nature, of what will really bring real happiness is perverted. It's broken. It's deceived by our own internal sinful bent. We are not morally able to repent and to receive God's grace of forgiveness in Jesus Christ because we don't by our nature want to. Christ crucified is preached and to us yeah, foolishness. Let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die and that's what we'll choose. Since the fall, human beings are able to sin and not able to not sin. That's what the fall did. Listen to how Paul describes this in Ephesians 2, starting with verse 1. And you were dead... They're not dead any longer. We'll see that. You're alive now. But by nature, when you're born in this world, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind waiting for judgment day. Unless only God's effectual call to new life could enable us to see Christ is the treasure in the field.
and to embrace Him and to be saved. That's why the very next thing Paul says here in Ephesians 2 is, but, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Christ. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Or you go back to Paul from 1 Corinthians 1 again, and he finishes it this way, and we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called by God from among Jews and Greeks, to them Christ is becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. We're born into the world able to sin and not able to not sin. And then we're born again. And we're able to sin. And we're also able to not sin. We have moments. Christ, receive Him. Pray with a heart that's broken like, like, like David in Psalm 51. And we do it. And that's a Glorious, righteous thing. How'd that happen? Now we're in this time of tension. Oh, we're sinful. And we are able to sin, and we do and will. And we're able to not sin. And in the future, when Jesus comes back and raises the church, everyone from the dead, and ushers in eternity, we will be able to not sin then also and we will be unable to sin and the will will be perfectly intact choosing always the greatest strongest inclination or desire oh what a salvation. Now, if everything I've said up to this point in 43 minutes, if it has been clear to you, you're following, then Jesus' words will make sense when you hear Him say in John chapter 6, verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He did not say, no one has permission to come to me. Or no one may come to me. Oh no. Permission's granted. Come! All you who are heavy laden. 
And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Come. For everyone who believes in Me will not perish. But you'll have everlasting, eternal life. Drink of the eternal waters of life. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Come. Here He's talking about ability. No one can. No one has within them the ability or the power. No one is able. Meaning, no one is morally able. Oh, they could come. They have permission to come if they want to. But they don't want to. And then there's the next word. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless that's the necessary condition that must be met for anyone to come to Jesus. Unless it is granted, given. Like these college students, you like grants more than you like loans. Those are gifts. It's money freely given. It's yours. You get to pay it back. Unless it is granted Him by the Father. That is unconditional grace causing us to come to Christ. God doesn't violate the human will in this. Our wills always are our wills. They choose the strongest desire, inclination, or motivation at any given moment. So what God does is He comes and He changes what we desire by the indwelling of the Spirit, by new birth. He changes our spirits with taste buds and we say, I like sushi now. Christ to me is the power of God. And the wisdom of God. Don't you see it? That's what happened. And the Gospel becomes the most delightful thing we've ever heard. And we choose Christ. Because our will is moved by the strongest desire at any given moment. This is what Jesus is driving at in John 3 when He said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's that unless again. No one will see nor enter the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the salvific reign of Christ to them unless something happens first. Unless they are born again. 
See, the biggest issue in understanding conversion to Jesus Christ revolves around knowing the truth that new birth precedes and causes saving faith. Not the other way around. We do not believe in Jesus in order to be born again. We are the recipients of God's act of new birth in order to believe in Jesus. Now, what I want to do then, this last week of these five weeks, I want to try to put it all together, believe it or not, in about 67 seconds on how these things fit together. Here's the big picture. Every one of us is born into this world spiritually dead to God. Fallen in Adam. Children of wrath. We have... And hopefully you know your math well. We have zero inclination for true repentance. True love for the one true God as our joy. We don't have it. So we'll never choose it. Okay, so God sends His Son into the world to become one of us. And He sends Jesus to the cross to suffer the punishment for our sins. But not only for that, for sin nature. Adam, our representative, plunged us. Christ redeems us as our representative. And He did that on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus purchased not only our pardon of, from sin forever and our eternal life, if we come to Him, but He also purchased our coming to Him. Our faith! So that all whom He calls will come. will come to saving faith, will be justified, and in the end be glorified. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And so in our lives, in our particular experiences of people throughout the millennia, something happens to us. It is a miracle that happens based upon nothing that we have done. It happens in the hearing of the Gospel. God then supernaturally calls us while hearing the Gospel. And we cannot not come. Because we don't want to not come. We do exactly what we want. And we come to such a great and glorious good news of Jesus Christ. We come alive and we obey the command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But that doesn't happen to every sinner. So then, to whom does it happen? The answer is to those whom God chooses from the depths of His own mercy. That is His unconditional choice or election. The way Paul summarizes it 
In Romans 8, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Or the way Paul says it in our book of Ephesians. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So, the born-again person, the Christian, and over here, a person who hasn't been born again, the unregenerate, they both are free to choose what they want. And they're always doing so. See, the non-Christian, the unregenerate human being, at that unless they become regenerate, but while they're unregenerate, they only desire anti-Christ, maybe very religiously anti-Christ, only self-worshipping, creature-worshipping inclinations. They are morally unable to come to Christ and to be saved on their own. Without new birth, the unregenerate cannot morally choose Christ. Now, why? Well, precisely because he cannot act against his own internal inclinations. That's what the human will is. He has no desire for the true Christ and the true Gospel and thus cannot choose what He does not want. You see, the fall of mankind is really drastic. And this is really the issue of the debate between us who are Christians on unconditional election. Are we totally fallen or not? We are. It is so drastic that only the God who has mercy on whom He has mercy can bring the unregenerate to saving faith by the effectual call like He did with Lazarus as an analogy. Dead body. Come forth! Did you know, because of that call of Jesus, it was impossible for her Lazarus to not stand up in the grave clothes and walk to the door of the tomb. He could not not do it because the call creates exactly what it calls for. And so let me close in saying, everyone and the sound of my voice is to hear the plea of Almighty God. Christ 
came and died for sins and was raised from the dead and He pleads with you, come. Come. Be saved. If you want to be saved, you will be. Want it. And for us who are believers, I just want to say then, in what you've heard this morning, And over the last five weeks, I plead with you, love the Savior. Revel in His eternal love for you that is very particular from the foundation of the world. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given to God a gift that God should repay? No one. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God alone be the glory forever and effort. Amen.